It's we the people who are going to save us. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Lights On. After two bipartisan impeachments, a 7 million vote election defeat, a deadly insurrection, a jury's finding of sexual assault liability, four criminal indictments in four different state and federal jurisdictions, 91 felony counts, and now 19 mugshots with his criminal enterprise, Donald J. Trump is still the front runner of the Republican Party. Something is seriously wrong with this picture. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave, not the brainwashed, duped, and grifted. We celebrate truth and valor and sacrifice, not fraud and dereliction and criminal defiance. This is not who we are. Too many would have it be who we become. Donald Trump and the party that has become him pose an existential threat to democracy. Our fellow citizens have been trying to warn us of this threat. Do enough of us understand it? Let's never forget that we the people have done extraordinary work to protect our democracy up until now. Now more than ever, we have to double down those efforts and raise the alarms. It's my absolute privilege to be joined by someone who was way ahead of the curve on all of this, someone who I've had the unique pleasure of meeting in the midst of my own battle against authoritarianism, co-founder and executive director of Protect Democracy, Ian Basson. Ian, welcome to Lights On. Jessica, it is an honor and a privilege to be on here with you. This is such a treat. As, as we were discussing before we, before we hopped on to this recording, we have talked uh, online but never actually met face to face. And this is really, really a treat. Um, full disclosure, Protect Democracy is the organization, one of um, my legal representatives in my battle to kill the Trump NDA, which has been wildly successful. Um, we are we are in the midst of um, certifying that class through a successful settlement agreement and Protect Democracy joined me back in 2020 to bring it to this point. Um, that is just one of the examples of the extraordinary work that Protect Democracy does um, in legal advocacy. And um, and I'm so grateful to, to have you on my team, Ian. It's it's really a complete joy. Well, it's been a privilege to represent you. Thank you. Um, I want to get your reaction. I mean, like I said in the intro, I think that you, I think about you so often because you founded Protect Democracy in 2017. You had a background as a White House, White House counsel, and you saw the danger I think before a lot of people did, and you you understood the need to strengthen our institutions to take legal action throughout the Trump presidency. You saw the threat that he um, posed as far as wanting to stay in power without the will of the people and were fighting against those efforts before January, well before January 6th ever happened. Um, just give us a little bit of insight into what, why you knew, why you knew early on that Donald Trump was who he has proven to be now. Well, part of my job when I was in the White House, when I was in the White House Counsel's Office, was making sure that White House staff uh, and executive branch appointees throughout our federal government abided by the rules that govern executive branch behavior. Uh, so I briefed almost every incoming political appointee for the first three years of the Obama administration on whether they were coming into government to work on 
tax policy or healthcare policy or foreign policy or energy policy, none of that mattered unless and until they could demonstrate that they were holders of the sacred public trust that we the people give to our representatives and officials in Washington to work on our behalf. And without that, we cease to really be a liberal democracy. And in doing that work, what becomes very clear when you do it is that many of the rules that govern the behavior of executive branch officials are not legally binding. They're just traditional, they're customary. You know, I had in my office three binders going back to the Eisenhower White House that had memos that White House chiefs of staff and White House counsel had sent out to executive branch officials explaining what they could do and what they couldn't do in trying to further the performance of their job. And if I ever had a question about how those rules were to be applied, I called Emmett Flood, who was the lawyer who did that for President Bush. And if Emmett and I couldn't answer it, we called Beth Nolan, who was the lawyer who did it for President Clinton. It didn't matter whether you had a D or an R next to your name. These were the rules that made us a liberal democracy. And so after Donald Trump's election, the question that was forefront in my mind and the, and the mind of my co-founders was, what if you had a leader and indeed an administration and a political movement that was not committed to abiding by those rules that Democrats and Republicans alike had adhered to for decades, if not centuries. I feel confident in saying that had anyone won the 2016 election from Bernie Sanders to Ted Cruz, regardless of their policy preferences, we would not have formed protect democracy. But the fact of the matter is it was clear throughout the campaign in 2016, it's been clear for the last six years and it's clear as day to day that fundamentally Donald Trump and the movement he has created do not believe in a constitutional, liberal, democratic, republican form of government, the kind that we have and have always aspired to have in this country. And so it was clear that we needed an organization to stand up for the foundations of our democracy and bring people together across the partisan divide from progressives, moderates, and conservatives to defend the idea of democracy. And you have done tireless work on that on that front. I mean, I'll just give, uh, in addition to the Trump NDA case that you represent me on, I'm just going to name a few. You represented um, the Portland Wall of Moms fighting against fighting back against excessive police force in the summer of 2020. You have fought the Stop Woke Act from DeSantis in Florida. You represented a pastor whose free exercise of religion was thwarted by Trump's DHS at the southern border. You're currently representing Stephen Richer in Maricopa County. He's the recorder there who's been defamed by Carrie Lake. Um, you rallied former DOJ officials to push back against Trump's weaponization of the Department of Justice. You were behind the scenes so much of the work of the January 6th committee, impeachment too. You represent Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman and their claims against Rudy Giuliani and other right-wing outlets who defamed them. I mean, it goes on and on. Your work is absolutely priceless. Um, it is because of this work that we still have a democracy standing here today. This did not happen or organically. It happened because people like you and people like me who woke up and joined this fight, um, we did the work. It really is we the people who have saved us up until now, is it not? I completely agree. At the end of the day, the first three words of the Constitution, you kicked off this podcast with them. They are ultimately the stopgap that protects us from declining into a more authoritarian form of government. But as you noted, our institutions don't defend themselves. Our constitution, our set of checks and balances, they are not self-executing. They require we the people to animate them. And so that's what we've set out to do. And all of the projects and the, the cases that you mentioned 
there's a through line to them. Um, there's a strategy behind them. And that strategy is to blunt the autocratic playbook that you see now playing out around the world. You know, we are living right now in a recession of democracy globally. Democracy has really risen and fallen in a series of waves since its modern advent. The first wave in the early 19th century when uh, the first modern forms of democracy, imperfect though they were, largely for propertied white men, began to take hold and spread to a handful of countries, but then that wave receded. A second wave of democracy rose after World War II, uh, where the colonial powers of Europe uh, gave independence or, or formerly colonized nations took independence, and you had sort of a rebirth of democracy around the world after World War II, that wave crashed. And then finally, the third wave of democracy, the last quarter of the 20th century, the broadest yet, where democracy spread to the furthest reaches of the earth and improved to its greatest extent in the countries that had long been democratic. And we are now living in the recession of that third wave. And there's a pattern that you can see in Venezuela, in Turkey, in Hungary, in these countries that have been at the forefront of democratic backsliding, that these autocratic movements deploy. And it includes seven things. The politicization of independent institutions like law enforcement, the civil service, the military, the spreading of disinformation, including from the government, the aggrandizing of executive power and the undercutting of checks on that power like legislatures or courts or the free press or the private sector, the quashing of dissent, the stigmatizing, the, the delegitimization of vulnerable populations, the corrupting of elections, the inciting of violence. And those seven steps of the autocratic playbook you see playing out around the world in the 21st century, and you've seen all of them attempted here in the last six years. And so all the projects that you mentioned are part of a strategy to stop that playbook from taking hold here in the United States. Well, God, Ian, you know that quashing of dissent uh, element is something that I know far too well. And the, 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 the tragedy um, and the sickness around this, and I mean, really so many of those points that you mentioned is you have a whole ecosystem that's telling their listeners and followers that it's the opposite, that, it, that the people who are really working to defend democracy are the ones trying to attack free speech or weaponize our government or, you know, are a danger to us and our institutions. So it's that, that disinformation element, I think, infiltrates into all of that because it's perverting the American public's perception of what's what. It's it's turning everything completely on its head. It's um, textbook, it's textbook. If you read Hannah Arendt on the origins of totalitarianism, what she writes about is that if you can create a society in which there's no longer a truth, there's no longer a falsity, nobody can tell up from down, that creates an opening for the corrupt and the, and the sort of ill-intended to seize power. And so by accusing your opponents of what you yourself are guilty of, you muddy the playing field. Steve Bannon famously said, right, we're gonna flood the zone with shit and make yeah. it very, very hard for anyone to tell what's true and what's not. And it's in that, exactly in that context that authoritarianism can thrive and democracy can die. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's such a common retort from Trump supporters. And I know because I used to be used to say this when you when people would bring up how bad Republicans were to me or Trump at the time in 2016. You know what I would say, Ian? They're all bad. That's right. They're all bad. And that's what that's what the aspiring authoritarians, that's what the, you know, Tucker Carlson's of the world, the right wing eco chamber, that is what they want you to believe. They want you to believe everybody's bad 
So um, you're going to choose the least of some really bad characters. You're going to choose the strongest of those characters. I mean, I have some thoughts about strength versus weakness here. What's really strength? Um, but that's, they really do want you to believe that everybody is corrupt. That's why there's been such an aggressive smear campaign against Joe Biden and his family, um, to, to distract from the real criminality, um, that, that they don't want to face in their own party. And ultimately it is a power grab. It's just an, a mechanism to centralize power in, in an entity that cannot be challenged. That's right. And that, that's Trumpism and Putinism in a nutshell, yeah. right? Which is that Trump and Putin, to some extent, I think genuinely believe that rules and laws are for suckers, that society is a game of survival of the fittest. And we exist in a state of nature in which anything goes. And if you can be someone who through trickery or manipulation or deception or brute force or violence can get your way, then to the victor go the spoils and have your day. And that is the way that Trump came up uh, in you know, sort of the New York underworld where he had to navigate that underworld and learn, learn that from Roy Cohn, his mentor. That's the way Putin came up uh, in the Soviet Union and the KGB. And they would like to reshape the world in that image because they both think that if the world is a state of nature in which only those who are the most, most ruthless and the most willing to use any measures to seize power, that's a world in which they win, but a world of fairness, a world of rules, a world in which there's common decency, a world where we all have some shared values that we uphold, that's not a world in which people like that can thrive. And so it is in Trump's and Putin's interest to convince us that everyone's corrupt, that the whole world is corrupt, and you should seize yours too, because that allows their, them to seize the most. And let me, let me reveal the ending for you. Yeah. They will seize yours. They want you to give up power so they can take what's yours. And they're trying yes. to hoodwink you into giving it up. Amen. And that includes all of you MAGA out there, all of the Trump supporters, especially you. You're the ones that are you're the ones that are being used the worst because you believe this. The rest of us at least have our eyes open and we can have the, we have the tools to fight back. But you're in the most danger, Trump supporters. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, you were talking about the rule of law and how they would they would they would aspire for it to be um, just a joke, you know, just something that they use as a political political weapon to um, use against their enemies. But here we finally we finally, Ian. I mean, I know that Protect Democracy has been putting out so much. Was like I said, way ahead of it, and I was definitely in that chorus uh, of why we needed accountability. We can do all the things in the world to try to strengthen our institutions and fight back, but criminal liability in adherence with the rule of law was an, is an absolutely essential element of protecting our democracy. When you were talking about the threats around the world, um, I was reminded of something I heard you say, um, I think in a, in a video that you have on Protect Democracy's website, which is that I think Argentina has now a stronger democracy index as the ratings go than the United States. And I was reminded of the fact that um, in 1985, Argentina prosecuted their fascist dictator military junta. And it was, I believe, that accountability that has kept Argentina as a democracy up until this point and strengthened them because they had that moment of reckoning and accountability. 
Yeah, that's the story around the world. Um, in the fall of 2020, you'll recall in the lead up to the election, there were a lot of questions about whether were Joe Biden to prevail, the best thing for the country would be to turn the page, to move forward, to bring us together in a moment of unity, of looking forwards, not backwards, and whether that would be the best way to proceed as a nation, or alternatively, whether looking backwards at the abuses of the last administration was an important thing to do for the sake of preventing recurrence, for the sake of deterrence, for the sake of healing. That was a genuine question in the fall of 2020. And we decided to take in an open-minded agnostic look at well, what evidence do we did we have from around the world and from history about which of those paths was most likely to put us in a position to avoid the recurrence of the kinds of abuses that we saw uh, in the preceding years. And what we found in talking to those people who have engaged in this practice overseas, looking at the historical record, looking at all the international examples, including places like Argentina, was that the answer was clear from history and international experience. If you do not have accountability for gross abuses of power at the highest levels of government, you are more likely to see those abuses recur and worsen. I remember at one point I was talking to a government expert who advises governments around the world on the need for accountability after those those high level abuses. And I said, well, is there an example? What What's the most recent example that you can point to of where a failure to do that has led to problems? And the person said, look at the paper today. And it happened to be the day that the military junta in Myanmar had retaken power. And the expert I was talking to said, there's a perfect case study. The, the military had recently um, entered into, you know, sort of a, a power sharing agreement with Aung San Suu Kyi's movement. The, the, the freedom movement had decided not to look backwards at some of the abuses of the prior military regime. They decided to look forwards instead. And because there was no accountability, because there was no punishment for wrongdoing, because there was no deterrent to do it again, the military leadership was emboldened. And just several years after that power sharing agreement, they came back with an even more vicious coup and seizure of power where they put their opponents in prison. And so that was just right there on the papers as we were asking this question, the evidence that if you don't have accountability, problems will worsen. And so what we are seeing now, thankfully, is our country do, I think, a very good job at go using the institutions that we have, you mentioned earlier the January 6th Select Committee and doing an investigation and a national truth-telling. Civil uh, litigation and liability, we represent several of the Capitol Police officers who were injured on January 6th in a suit against the former president for approximately causing those injuries. Um, and now, of course, the four indictments you're seeing through different jurisdictions, the federal, two different states, that are making clear that in our country, no one is above the law. And where we have to have taken a different path, were we to have said, well, it would be inappropriate to indict a former president, even if the facts in the law demanded it, because that would be potentially risky for the country, we would have actually disproven the idea that no one is above the law. We would have created a regime in which the powerful are held to a different standard than the less powerful. And most importantly, we would have sent a signal that the things of which President Trump is accused of doing are okay, and that there is not accountability and there is not punishment for those sorts of acts. And that would have been an invitation for people to repeat them. 100%. What I always say is that accountability, the, the biggest reason why we need it is as a deterrence method, especially in the case of Donald Trump. His visibility just heightens the importance for him to be held accountable because so many people are watching. 
And the evidence of that deterrence is visible. You know, a lot of people showed up on January 6th when Donald Trump asked them to. But you know what happened when they went into the Capitol? Many of them have now been indicted and many of them have been convicted. And so you know what? When Donald Trump asked the same mob to show up at the Atlanta courthouse or at the New York courthouse or at the D.C. courthouse, how many of them came? You know why they didn't come? Because they did not want to get arrested again for engaging in inappropriate behavior. That's not to say that peaceful protest isn't allowed and protected. It absolutely is. But January 6th was not that. And so when Donald Trump has tried to call that into action again, wisely, self-interested Americans, seeing what happened to those who invaded the Capitol on January 6th, decided, you know what, sir, I'll take a pass. That's deterrence working. Absolutely, 100%. I just want to, I want to loop back for one second to what you said about Myanmar, because I've brought up that before. And not only is it an example, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up, because I was not aware of that history, that their failure to enforce accountability. But I've also thought of what happened in Myanmar as a direct result, as almost being inspired by Donald Trump and his election fraud claims. I think that what he has done has had ripple effects globally, and it was right after January 6th or in the midst of that, that Myanmar, that that's what gave, you know, cause to the military to wrest control from, you know, the democratic forces in Myanmar. They claimed election fraud and they took, they, they set them on this regressive course. Or look at Brazil. Brazil Brazil had a January 8th incident that was remarkably similar to our January 6th incident. You know, it used to be the case that the United States was the beacon of democracy around the world, that we were exporting a more democratic form of government with greater freedoms and greater rights and stronger institutions, greater protections. And that wasn't a capital D democratic priority. It was also a capital R Republican priority. It was Ronald Reagan who called us the city on a hill for the world to look at. It was George Bush who pledged in his second inaugural to help bring freedom and democracy around the world. And what are we exporting now? We're exporting insurrection. We're exporting claims of election fraud. We're exporting to dictators around the world the ability to say fake news and delegitimize the independent media. That's what America's exporting right now. And we need to reverse that if we want to protect freedom and democracy for the 21st century. 100%. I, um, I wanted to, when I, I want to bring this back to kind of where we just are in this moment with what happened in Fulton County yesterday. And, um, you know, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about the mugshot and how historic it is. It absolutely is historic. Um, I happen to be of the opinion that, okay, look at it and then don't spread it around because that's what he wants for martyrdom. He wants, he wants more people to look at this. There was a kind of very menacing, threatening look in his face that I think he pro- probably practiced a good deal before he had that picture taken. It almost, it, you know, he's inspiring stochastic terrorism to this day. And I think that photo almost in itself is a stochastic and terrorism inspiring uh, image. But um, for the sake of of equal justice. I mean, this is another thing you can think about the global um, effects of Donald Trump's accountability. I also think of it just on a national level of how many people around this country have have had their lives materially altered by minor infractions of the law, um, who have who have you know can't afford to to post bail, who have spent years in prison. Um, maybe even on on for crimes they didn't commit and i see this uh as a kind of leavening and and a a real progressive and um hopeful sign for our entire justice system that somebody as 
supposedly powerful and you know elite or whatever as Donald Trump is and his all of those co-defendants in Georgia can be held accountable. I wanted to play a clip because I think Joy Reid yesterday on MSNBC said this so perfectly. Um, let's play this clip and I'll, we'll get, get your reaction to Ian on the other side. You know, I can tell you for me, it is, you know, when I moved back to New York, um, one of the mugshots that, that, that sit with me, I mean, I still remember that he made five teenagers yeah. my age yeah. take a mugshot. Yeah. That he wanted them not just take a mugshot, he wanted them dead. Say what that case was. And this was the Central Park Five case, the exonerated five, you know, and, and they were my age. Yeah. So as a teenager living in New York, I, I've said it before, this is the reason I never watched The Apprentice. Yeah. I despised Donald Trump yeah. because he, to me, signified the rich white guy in Manhattan that absolutely hated and despised me, yeah. that hated and despised my cousins, my friends, everyone we knew, that, that, that called us wilding yeah. just because we were in the park, that said we can't be free to walk around in the street, that said when Patrick Dorismond got killed by an off-duty police officer, he's no choir boy. And he was literally, I mean, was no altar boy. He was literally an altar boy. Giuliani said that. And so people like Giuliani and people like Trump persecuted black and brown people in New York. It's what they did for fun. It's what they did for pleasure. They enjoyed it. They enjoyed lording over people who had nothing, who had no million dollar lawyers, who couldn't change lawyers at the drop of a hat and get a different hip hop lawyer the next day when they were tired of one, who couldn't go out and make their case on, you know, Fox or on Newsmax, who had nothing and who Donald Trump lorded his everything over and still people who looked like them put him in rap songs. It was an indignity to me that something I loved, a culture I loved would lionize that. And so to me, this is justice. Yeah, that, that just, I just wanted to say the Central Park Five situation has been such, that's been one of the hardest things for me because I simply did not know it existed in 2016. And when I found out um, what, what happened to those men because of Donald Trump, largely because of him, it's why education is so vital. You don't know what you don't know. Well, and I'll add to the poetic justice of the moment we're in right yeah. now is that one member of the central, the, the exonerated five, Yusuf Salam, is now the Democratic nominee for city council in his district in the Bronx and won the primary earlier this year and, and likely will win the general. So there's some redemptiveness there as well. Long overdue and not enough redemptiveness. I think what, it, what, what I agree very much with what Joy Reid is saying there, and I think there's a bigger piece to this as well, which is that one of the reasons I believe that we're in this moment where our democracy is, is in such crisis is because of a lack of accountability in recent years and a sense that the system isn't fair and a sense that the system is rigged. And this is something that Donald Trump played on when he ran. You know, during in the aftermath of the 2007, 2008 financial crisis, all of the average Americans uh, who had been victimized by the corrupt behavior of those in the banks and those on Wall Street, they paid the price for it. But those at the top who made a killing off of it, they never got prosecuted. And I, I fault the president that I worked for, uh, Barack Obama and the attorney generals he had for, for failing to make sure that there was accountability in that era for that gross abuse of power that deprived so many Americans of their life savings and their homes. And there was a sense then, and we were aware of it uh, in the White House, that the American public were starting to believe that the American dream was no longer true. That the idea that if you worked hard and played by the rules, you could get ahead had been superseded by a new regime in which 
if you worked hard and played by the rules, you were going to go to the back of the line. And those people who cheated at the front, they were the ones who were going to get ahead and they were going to get away with it. And that sense that the American dream had been subverted is what I think in part allowed Donald Trump to ascend when he said the system is rigged and I alone can crush it and fix it. So the irony, I think, is that we are now beginning to reverse that slide away from accountability, starting really here with Donald Trump and saying, you know what? As Joy Reid said, if you get arrested in Atlanta, and I would say this to everyone, Jessica, who's watching this right now, anyone who's watching this, if you got arrested in Atlanta, in Atlanta, and you were asked to come in, do you think that if you said, you know what, I'd prefer not to have my picture taken, could you accommodate that for me? Do you <laughs> think the Atlanta Fulton County Sheriff's Office would accommodate you? You bet they would. No. So why yeah. should they accommodate Donald Trump Donald just Trump. because he's powerful? They shouldn't. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, you, you, that, that's, I'm glad you brought up the, the financial crisis. There's so much that needs to be done in this country. And you would think, you would think that the party that's so-called the that likes to call themselves the party of law and order would be behind this, wouldn't wouldn't you? But they are so very much not. I want to talk to you so much more about that on the other side of this quick break. <laughs> are your subscriptions draining your wallet? The average person has around 12 paid subscriptions, and they might not even remember subscribing to half of those. If you have no idea just how much you're spending each month, you need rocket money. It's this great app that tracks all of your expenses so you would know exactly where your money is going. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel the ones you don't want with just the press of a button. No more long hold times or annoying emails with customer service. Rocket Money does all that work for you. And it also lets you monitor all your expenses in one place, recommends custom budgets based on your past spending, and they'll even send you notifications when you've reached your spending limits. With over 3 million users and counting, Rocket Money customers have saved an average of $720 a year. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash lights on. That's rocketmoney.com slash lights on. Rocketmoney.com slash lights on. So you had something to say right off the bat about law and order in the GOP. I'll let you I'll let you take it. Well, I think the point you're making that they claim to be at this point a party of law and order, and yet, as we saw in the GOP debate earlier this week, at least six and maybe more of them said that if Donald Trump were convicted. They would still support him for president. And what is that? Can we play say? that clip real quick? Well, let's, let's. You all signed a pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Yep, you see there, everybody but Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson raised their hand. Well, and, and let's point out a couple of things. First, let's just point out the cowardice. You saw Ron DeSantis. He didn't put his hand up originally. He looked at what other people were doing and took their lead. Yeah, that's a coward right there. Second, this is a party that's talking about running on the principle of law and order and saying that if a jury of citizens convicts somebody, 
after a prosecutor has gotten a grand jury to indict them and the evidence has been presented, were that to happen in multiple jurisdictions with multiple prosecutors, multiple grand juries, multiple juries, all voting unanimously, they still think that that would not be legitimate enough to disqualify someone from the office. That's a statement that they don't believe in our constitutional system. You cannot be for law and order and then say that the system that produces that law and order, our judicial system, doesn't actually have any legitimacy enough to suggest that someone convicted shouldn't hold the highest law enforcement office in the land. Um, but here's the, the last thing you know, that I would just say about that, which is we are now living in a country in which a sizable percentage of the population think that it is not only okay, but potentially even a qualification for the highest office in the land for someone to have led an effort to overturn an election and when any legal effort to do so failed, launch a violent insurrection to do that. Whatever would have given such a significant portion of the Republican base that idea? And here's the bad news. It's not Donald Trump. It's that six of his fellow candidates said it's okay. Because if Donald Trump said that was okay, that's not enough to normalize it. But when the rest of the leadership of the party says it's okay, well, then it simply must be for a member of the party. So who's guilty of normalizing that as the new standard for the presidency? It's every one of those people on stage who raised their hand. Amen. They are supposed to be leaders, are they not? To lead the people into the truth and clarity. I mean, we can just, we'll remind people, like you said, of the support for Donald Trump. I mean, in, in the Republican field, I think the latest poll has him at 53%. DeSantis is trailing far behind him at 16, Ramaswamy at 11. Um, this is an insane situation because of the GOP, because of their failed leadership. I want to play a clip from Asa Hutchinson, who will never go beyond, um, you know, a very couple of points in the polls, probably. But just listen to this man for a minute and think about if, like you said, Ian, every one of those other six people on the stage were saying the same thing. I did not raise my hand because there's an important issue we as a party have to face. And over a year ago, I said that Donald Trump was morally disqualified from being president again as a result of what happened on January 6th. More people are understanding the importance of that, including conservative legal scholars who says he may be disqualified under the 14th Amendment. I think we have another clip from Asa too. Do you have that, Salty or Jeremy? It starts at the top with the respect for our justice system that a former president who's under indictment has undermined by attacking judges, by attacking prosecutors, by attacking the system and saying he's aggrieved. So there's yeah, the I mean, clarity. Look, there, there's two things that are important about this. One is obviously the point we've been talking about, about the role of leadership. In Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt's book, How Democracies Die, they talk about how the abdication of leadership by existing leaders in the face of an authoritarian threat is normally the first step on the road towards autocracy. And we have seen nothing but abdication from the leaders in the GOP over the last six years. But there's a more self-serving, self-interested reason why I can't believe that these Republican politicians continue doing this. You know, they've been trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results for the last, last six years. Albert Einstein called that the definition of insanity. They've been trying to sort of have it both ways with Trump and not totally confront him and try to accommodate him and try to placate their base, hoping that somehow he would mysteriously disappear and they would ascend in its place. And that strategy keeps failing. 
And you know what strategy I've seen work over and over again in politics? Now, I've never been a campaign manager and I've never been a candidate, but I've knocked on hundreds, if not thousands of doors, and I've made hundreds, if not thousands of phone calls across the United States to voters. And you know what voters respond to? You know what voters vote for? They vote for authenticity. And although Donald Trump lies through his teeth on a daily basis, he is who he is. And he doesn't try to hide who he is. He shows who he is. And you know what? It's actually a big part of his appeal. But when Ron DeSantis stands up on that stage and can't figure out whether he wants to put his hand up or not and looks at what everyone else is doing, you know what that screams to everyone in the audience? This guy is a phony. And there's nothing that turns a voter off more than a phony. So if the Republican candidates for president won't do what Asa Hutchinson's doing because it's the right thing to do, because it's their oath to do it, because it's the thing that we need to protect democracy, maybe they'll do it because it's just self-serving. Because we all know secretly, they all think Donald Trump is a bad man. They all think Donald Trump is an embarrassment to the party. And the fact that they can't honestly say what they think is the most toxic element of all in their appeal to their own voters. Yeah, to me, Ian, the fact that they can't, they know it privately and can't say it publicly is the key reason why they themselves are disqualified from being right. leaders of any kind. That's um, right. I mean, you look at someone like DeSantis, the, the absolute fool that he has become and just laughing stock, frankly, on deservedly, deservedly. I mean, this man is a fascist in Florida. I'm just two things that he bragged about in this debate was firing prosecutors, which were duly elected by the citizens of Florida. Um, prosecutors who would not do his bidding. I mean, this man is a clear dictator in waiting. I, I think back a couple years ago when people were saying, oh, DeSantis wouldn't be as bad as Trump. I'm like, think again. This guy, I don't think, I don't think for the reasons, you know, we've, we've talked about that he goes very far and becomes the nominee, but um, extremely dangerous. And this is where this party is headed. Yeah. We, look, we have a liberalism on the left and right in this country. There are liberal strains on the left and there are liberal strains on the right, but they are not symmetrical. The liberal strains on the right have overtaken America's cent formerly center-right party. They have not overtaken the Democratic Party. And so we need to be really honest about where the threat is coming from right now to our democracy. It is coming from within the Republican Party. That does not mean that every Republican believes in what's going on. In fact, I think a sizable number of them are fully committed to democracy. And, and you know, as you noted, our organization, Protect Democracy, is progressives, moderates, and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans. You yourself have spent time working for candidates on the other side of the aisle, but you have come forward in a very principled way to say, whatever policy preferences I once may have supported, my top preference, my primary preference is to have a democratic form of government. That And that is something that I think most Americans share. I think that the anti-MAGA majority in this country is two thirds or greater. And what we need to do is we need to make sure those people who do hold center right or even more deeply conservative policy preferences rejoin with the rest of us to reject this authoritarian movement coming from within their ranks, stand up for the principles of democracy and get back to a place where we can all argue again about what the top marginal tax rate should be or how we should regulate healthcare or how strong or weak of a social safety net we should have. Those yeah. are arguments we can have in a healthy democracy, but we can't have them until we all tie hands and unite and defeat this authoritarianism threat so that we can actually protect the healthy democracy in which we can have those peaceful debates.
Yeah, like you mentioned, there is consensus, I mean, growing consensus across the ideological spectrum. Asa Hutchinson mentioned the 14th Amendment. I had the opportunity to interview Donald Chairman of Crew, um, C Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, who I know you're familiar with is doing similar legal advocacy um, and all about the 14th Amendment and why Section 3 does, in fact, disqualify Trump. And, you know, just recently you had these two preeminent legal scholars in the conservative legal community, William, um, William uh, Bod, yep. Michael, William Paulson, Bod and Michael Stokes Paulson. Right. And, and also backed by Stephen Calabrese, one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society, um, Judge Luddig, that very stellar witness for the January 6th committee who advised Mike Pence has come to back this argument as well. Um, this is a, this is a, a political, I don't even want to say bipartisan. This is not a partisan issue. This is a constitutional issue. I mean, it's, it's very straightforward. Donald Trump is not and, qualified even to be on that, on that. That's ballot. right. And let's, and let's give listeners a little bit of background on this section three of the 14th amendment that you're referencing. So this was a part of the 14th amendment that was enacted after the civil war out of a recognition that political leaders in the union prior to the civil war became traitors to the union led the confederacy in a revolution against the union and that it would be madness to take people who had already proven that when given the oath of office to protect and defend the u.s constitution violated that oath by leading a war against the constitutional order that it would be madness to give someone who had proven they were willing to do that the same power again violate the oath once we're not going to give the oath to you a second time. Okay. And so what the Reconstruction Congress did was they put a provision in the 14th Amendment that said, if after having taken the oath of office and served in a public office where the oath was administered, you violated that oath by engaging in insurrection against the United States, you were no longer qualified to hold public office again or be given that oath again, unless Congress explicitly absolved you and decided to allow you back in. They wanted there to be a pathway where people who had joined the Confederacy, engaged in insurrection, could essentially pay their dues, prove their bona fides, earn their way back. It, America has a principle of redemption shot through our history, that you could redeem yourself and have a path back, but you would have to prove some degree of contrition and remorse and commitment to the union going forward. And if you did that, Congress could let you back in. But absent Congress doing that, you were barred from office. That provision was intended for people like Donald Trump. That provision was intended that should there ever be another moment in American history when someone took the oath of office, and not any oath, but the oath of the presidency, and then turned against our constitutional order and led an insurrection against the government, that they would be barred from ever being given that oath again absent an overwhelming vote of Congress to allow them back in. That vote of Congress allowing Donald Trump back in hasn't happened yet. Yeah, contrition on the part of Donald Trump. Don't hold your breath, right? That's right. <laughs> Would be the, the very thing that saves that man's soul, but I don't know if it's coming on this earth. But I'm glad you mentioned that second sentence only because I, um, I had some, I've been reading through the comments. We had extraordinary feedback to this interview we did all about Section three. And there's some some people misunderstand Section three, that second sentence to mean that Congress by two thirds vote 
has to disqualify. It's actually the opposite. It's saying Congress by two thirds vote can remove a disqualification. So I just wanted to put that clarification out there in case anybody is still um, entertaining that. That's right. Um, But yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, this, the fact that um, that the GOP, that I, for many years being on the other side, I really, I entertained the illusion that the Republican Party was the constitutional party, that the Democrats were trying to tear it down. Um, and to have this state, this just complete moral abyss in one of our two major political parties, what one of our two parties that is supposed to uphold democracy itself. Um, it's really a crisis. I, I wanted to share uh, John Meacham's thoughts on this, uh, presidential historian John Meacham, and get your reaction, Ian. And the way we've chosen to c- conduct our public life in the United States is according to the rule of law. And right now, a significant chunk of a once noble party the party of Eisenhower and Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush, a party that did, in fact, in the end, put country above themselves. They are not doing that right now. And, you know, you talk to Republicans, I talk to Republicans, and they, they will say the quiet part in private, like, mm-hmm. oh, we want to move on from Trump. But you, you can't just say it, right? It, this, this, is, this requires action. It requires a willingness to say my team is wrong and until we get it right i'm going to vote for the other guy the gop has to lose to set this right don't they and they seem to be punting and punting and punting the inevitable there is going to be a reckoning for the mistakes they have already made and it is in their interests to accelerate that because it's going to happen sooner or later and here's i think the cautionary tale from history In the interwar period in Europe, there was a rise of far-right extremist authoritarian politics and political parties. And in two countries, in Finland and in Belgium, the mainstream center-right party saw the energized extremist authoritarians on their right flank, saw them as a threat to the system, and did the difficult thing. They joined hands with their traditional opponents on the center-left, and they united in defense of their democratic order to block the authoritarians from power. In two other countries in which extremist far-right movements gained energy and traction in the interwar period, Italy and Germany, the mainstream center-right parties chose a different strategy. They decided that they could co-opt the energy of the extremists on the right flanks, ride it to power, and then sideline the leaders of those extremist movements and just gain the benefit of the energy of their supporters. We know how tragically that turned out in both Italy and Germany. And I would think about this, which of those paths, the Belgian Finnish path or the Italian German path has the modern Republican party chosen thus far? It's not too late for them to choose the other path. Yeah, thank you for that insight. Fascism, we have lessons about fascism from recent history and there's so much evidence right now in this moment from banning books to you talk about aligning with those extremist elements, I think about the gun debate. Um, you know, even the majority of even gun owners across this country are in favor of common sense gun reform. But I happen to think that this Republican Party wants, to, wants an armed citizenry. 
And once extremist minded people who, um, who, you know, glorify their AR-15 more than any God they profess to worship um, on their side. Uh, and, and I think we really have to acknowledge, acknowledge the, the state and the level of threat that we have with this party. Yeah, we've been uh, maintaining for the last several years something called the Authoritarian Warning Survey, which we do in partnership with professors at George Washington University, which is a regular tracking poll of political scientists around the country trying to assess what is the risk to our democracy of declining into a more authoritarian form of government. It's a little bit like people are probably more familiar with the atomic scientist doomsday clock, right? How close are we to nuclear midnight? This is the authoritarian version of it. And over the last several years, we have been a country in danger of losing its democracy to authoritarianism. That's ticked up, that's ticked down. We actually had a pretty significant improvement in those scores after the most recent midterms, where the political scientists collectively estimated that the chance of democratic breakdown in the US over the next four years dropped from 29% to 19%. On the one hand, that's a pretty great improvement to take place over just a couple of months. On the other hand, a one in five chance of your house burning down, who goes to sleep without doing anything about that level of threat? And you can track that on our website at protectdemocracy.org and just see whether that's going up or down, because ultimately we need that authoritarian warning survey to go back down to zero. Yeah, we do need it. And it takes um, it takes an informed electorate and informed citizenry. That's so, so much of the focus for me because I understand. I mean, I was never somebody that wanted a strongman dictator. I was ne- I was always someone who loved freedom. I was just my my affections were misplaced. I didn't understand who stood for what. Um, and I was kind of reminded of that mindset in in the worst possible way. I'm not going to play any clips of it, so don't worry. I'm not bringing Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson onto lights on. But I went back. And, and watch clips of that interview. And um, some of the things that stuck out to me are, were how Donald Trump characterized the prosecution against him as sick, as people that hate this country. I, I was subjected to so much of this propaganda portraying law-abiding public servants as people who hate this country. And then when he was asked about uh, possibility of civil war, Tucker Carlson asked Donald Trump this, his response was, I don't know. And he, he talked about the crowd at January 6th and he described it. And I thought this was really interesting and almost, almost honest in, in revealing in a way. He said there's a combination of love in that crowd on January 6th and hatred for what they've done to this country. And I'm like, you know what, buddy? The hatred is all because of you. It's all because of what you've created. That and and it and I'm there's probably not many people out there saying this, but I unfortunately, and I'm saying this only per, for perspective, I recognize that quote unquote love. Okay. I momentarily felt it in 2016 when I worked for his campaign. It was the reason why I joined it. I momentarily felt a sense of community and purpose, misaligned, misplaced but I did feel it. And it's really sick and perverse that Donald Trump and the whole right-wing ecosystem has taken this sense of what for many people started as a a patriotism, a love for this country and converted it into hatred. Hatred. Yeah, I think 
one of the things that we are lacking in this country at present is that strong sense of community, is that strong sense of social bonds, social trust, meaning, purpose, well-being. And I think there's two ways to address that. One is to stoke the flames of animosity the way that Donald Trump has, to talk about American carnage and turning on one another. But I don't think fundamentally that's what Americans are really looking for. Americans feel that sense of alienation. They feel us not having the depth of community that we once had in this country. They feel that sense of division. But I think this is true of polls and it's true of my own personal experience. They would prefer to solve that problem, to fill what is missing with a sense of unity, with a sense of positivity, with a, with a sense of happiness, with a sense of enjoyment and hope. And I would ask this, when you look at that mugshot of Donald Trump, and you brought it up earlier, and you look at those eyes, and you look at the anger in those eyes, and the menace in those eyes, is that the face you want your child to admire, look up to, and replicate? Or do we want our children to solve the problem of what's missing in our lives with a more positive, optimistic vision of who we are and what we can be? And I think it's clear to me from my experience living in this country, it's the latter that will save us. Before we wrap, Ian, I want to give you a chance just to turn any questions back on me. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that, Jessica, because there's one yeah. question that I've been burning to ask you for a long time. Tell me. And it's this, you know, in this era, a lot of people have had the opportunity, particularly from within the ranks of the Republican world, Trump world, to do the right thing, to stand up for constitution, for the country, for principle. And a lot of them haven't, I think, out of fear, uh, fear of the retaliation of what could happen to them. And that fear has cowed a lot of them. And I understand that to some degree. But you somehow had the courage to do it. Uh, and I'm curious how you found that. and what advice you have for others who could possibly consider following your very admirable path? Um, I would say you only live this life once. Um, I found it, Ian, through um, a very intense existential and spiritual battle that I resisted, that I very much resisted back in 2017, not wanting for um, it wasn't even a political consideration at, at the moment. It was just a moral consideration of was I going to allow this illegality that I experienced um, go by in my life? And the the conclusion that I came to it was a couple of things. One was that my own well-being, and I and I say this acknowledging that I think that the, a lot of these people who live in silence and fear and do not speak what they know to be true, are not happy and satisfied and fulfilled. This cannot be a um, this cannot be a healthy way to live. And I realized in that moment in 2017, two things. One was that my own well being, I my own well being mattered to the whole world. And this was something I was very reluctant to acknowledge. I wanted I I didn't think my what I had experienced was important enough to matter to anybody else and I had to reject that kind of false humility um, and and overcome that and realize the real selfless thing was to realize that I did have value that mattered to the world. The second thing was that I didn't think I could live with myself and I ultimately determined I couldn't if I didn't 
take action in that moment. I wouldn't have credibility for anything in the rest of my life if I didn't take a stand then in that moment, in that initial moment. And that guided me through the whole rest of the legal battle. It sustained me. It made me know that even when I was losing, that the end was victory because I had started from that principled premise. Um, I would say to Republicans out there or people in the GOP who are standing silent in the midst of this, knowing better, you only live this life once. At the end of the day, it's not going to be a political party or a ballot booth that judges you. It's, it's going to be something much higher. And I think many of them have a belief in a higher power. Um, and why wait? Why put it off? Why not live your life to the fullest right now when, when the whole world is counting on you? You are the ones. You are the ones. We're talking in this episode about the people who have done the work for democracy to protect democracy and will be lauded. You're the ones who will be shamed and looked back upon as why did you not speak up when it mattered? You have an opportunity now to change course and there is no positive negative outcome that it could be worse than not taking that stand right now. You will find your freedom and a path forward. Amen, Jessica. And may may people follow your very, very impressive lead. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Ian. I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Our work is <laughs> we've got plenty of work to to still do for, for many years to come and, and especially right now at this moment. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to it. All right. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us on Lights On. Please, as a reminder, if you are watching us on YouTube, definitely go over to wherever you get your audio podcasts and subscribe to Lights On with Jessica Denson. It really helps to spread the word about what we are doing to fight for this democracy and shine these bright lights on, on what we need to do, we the people need to do. And if you're watching or if you're listening on audio, Check us, check us out. Come see our smiling faces here on YouTube. Um, you can subscribe to Midas Touch and my YouTube channel, Jessica Denson, where I'm also posting clips uh, from the shows, highlights from the shows and getting more content up there as well. And if you want to support my legal battle, which continues to this day in state court, the inception fight that was behind defeating the Trump NDAs, um, I'm still very much embroiled in that. And you can do that at thejessicadenson.com slash donate thejessicadenson.com slash donate. Thank you so much to anyone who has donated. It means the world to me. So as always, let your light shine. And until next time, see you.